Our scripture reading this morning is Psalm 48. I invite you to turn in your Bible to Psalm 48. We read the entire psalm, and we will be looking at the entire psalm. As the heading says, this is a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, which suggests it most likely was written by inspiration after many of the people had returned from exile. Psalm 48. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled. They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. This truly is the word of the Lord. I encourage you to keep the passage open as we look at it together, brothers and sisters. Dear Congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, this past June I was um, favored. I had the opportunity once again to be in Riga, Latvia, in Eastern Europe, and to teach a course on ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. And this psalm, as well as many, many other passages, informs us and feeds our understanding of what the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is. Now, in this particular psalm, uh, the metaphors or the word pictures that enable us to think about the church is mountain, Mount Zion. Uh, You think of the city, the city of Jerusalem, and of course the temple where God's people would come on regular uh, pilgrimage to hear the word of the Lord, and to worship. Now, if any of you have ever been to Israel and to the city of Jerusalem, and if you've seen Mount Zion, uh, you'll conclude that what the psalm says is a little bit odd, at least in our ears. For we read in verses 1 and 2 that this psalm, uh, this mountain, Zion, is beautiful in elevation. Beautiful in elevation. The joy of all the earth. And yet, if you've ever been there physically, you will know that if you cross the Kidron Valley to the east, the Mount of Olives is actually about 200 feet higher than Mount Zion. And one observer said, Mount Zion is kind of like a, it's a pimple of a hill. 
it's not all that impressive. And so when the psalmist says, this mount is beautiful in elevation, we have to ask ourselves, well, what is going on here? Well, Psalm 48, we'll get back to that question. Psalm 48 is one of the many psalms that have been called Zion songs, royal psalms, like Psalm 46. There is a river whose streams make glad, what? The city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Or Psalm 76. God's abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. Or Psalm 87. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. Or Psalm 122. Jerusalem. Built as a city that is bound firmly together. And then the prayer, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now, all of these are inspired songs. Holy Spirit inspired songs that recall the central place that the city of Zion had in the life of the community of the Old Covenant. For here was where God caused his name to dwell. Here is where the throne of David was established for the leadership and the judgment in Israel. Here was the temple, that great and beautiful shrine that Solomon built to which the tribes would go for the great festivals, Passover, Pentecost, and booths or tabernacles. And the theme of this psalm has been best summarized this way, I think. The Lord is the true strength of his city. The Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, is the true strength of his city. Psalm 8 really is kind of the thematic center of the entire psalm. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, that God will establish, which God will establish forever. In other words, we have both seen it we have heard about it, namely, God will establish his city forever. Now, the psalm is nicely divided into four stanzas, although scholars debate as to what, which verses belong to which stanza. The most natural division seems to me, verses 1 to 3, 4 through 7, verse 8 is the center, 9 through 11, 12 to 14. First then, Psalm 48, verses 1 through 3. Great is the Lord. Of course, what a beautiful way to start this entire psalm is to ascribe greatness to the Lord. His name is highly exalted. Even Jesus would refer to Jerusalem in the Sermon on the Mount as the city of the great king. The great king, Yahweh. At one time, this city, which resisted the Israelite conquest a long time, the Jebusites held the city. And they boasted to David, they said, even the blind and the lame can defend this city from you. And so God enables David to capture it. And then he adopts it as his own city. It becomes the city of David. And David brings the Ark of the Covenant into the city, 2 Samuel 5. 
And now the throne of God in the ark is located in the city of David. And then David's great son, Solomon, builds, of course, that most beautiful shrine, that most beautiful shrine, the temple, to which God's people can come. This is why Mount Zion is beautiful in elevation. Not because of its height, not because of its own physical elevation. It is beautiful in elevation because the Lord has chosen to come and dwell with his people there. Think of it. The great God who is transcendent in his being, way beyond all time and space, chooses to make himself imminent, present, in a kind of special way in this house. The transcendent God is with his people living in the temple. You might say here already is kind of an Emmanuel theme. God is with us. God has come to dwell in this most beautiful shrine It is beautiful in elevation because Yahweh lives there. It is the joy of all the earth because the great and holy God cannot be contained in any temple. Remember Solomon when he prays the prayer of dedication in 1 Kings 8 says, okay, O Lord, you've come to dwell here, but this temple cannot contain you. The heavens cannot contain you. Even the heavens of the heavens cannot contain you. And yet the Lord in his great glory comes and dwells in our midst. What is more, as verse 3 says, not only is he in our midst, but he has shown himself to be a fortress, a stronghold, a rock, a strength, a mighty presence. Great is Yahweh. Great is the Lord. He is with us, not in any weakness, not in any Uh, shortcomings, but in his great power and strength. He is the fortress for Zion, the city of the great king. And this paves the way, therefore, for stanza two, the verses four through seven. The city of the great king has enemies. Not everyone in this world is a friend of grace. God and his people are not universally loved in the world today. Imagine that. Imagine that. And when we think of that, a number of scriptures come to mind, don't they? Psalm 2, for example. Why in the world do the nations rage? Why in the world do these kings imagine a vain, an empty thing? They think that the rule of the Lord and his Christ, the Lord and his Messiah, is oppressive. Let us cast their bonds from us. Let us throw off their chains. Uh, You remember what Psalm 2 says is the reaction of the Lord. First, he laughs. You think you'll get away with this rebellion? He laughs. But then comes his second reaction. Then he gets angry. And he reminds the readers in Psalm 2 This is the decree of the Lord. My son, I begotten you today. I have set your throne on Zion, my holy hill. And therefore, the kings of the earth, who are not universally wise in any way, shape or form, if they would truly be wise, 
would submit. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. And yet God's people, even God's people in their blindness, lose sight of the fact that the rule of the Lord and his Christ is the most blessed thing in all the earth. Remember what Pilate said when he became aware that Jesus, there were claims that Jesus was a king? And he says to the crowd, these Jewish crowd, what shall I do with your king? And they say, we have only one king, Caesar. Now, they, in their heart of hearts, they hated Caesar. But they would rather have Caesar with all of his oppression than Jesus. Give us Caesar away with Christ, away to the cross. Madness. This is the emptiness that mankind, even people who should know better, the Jews, what shall I do with your king? Get rid of him, they say. The Psalm 2 therefore reveals that God in heaven first laughs, then he gets angry. His decree is this. He has established his own king, his son, on Zion, his holy hill. Therefore, if the kings of the earth would really be wise, let them kiss the sun, lest they become angry and they perish in the way. True wisdom, genuine wisdom, is submitting to Christ as Lord and Savior. Psalm 48 tells us that the kings of the earth are not, therefore, as smart as they think they are. No, they're not. For verse 4 says, they assemble, they gather their fortresses, they come, they look, and then what? They're terror. They're filled with terror. They're astonished. They, they tremble in agony as a woman in labor. When they see the holy city, verse 5, they're panicked, they're astounded, they run away in, in fright. They tremble and shake in fear. Now, some of you who remember your high school Latin, remember what does Caesar record in his um, book on conquest in Gaul? Just three words. Waney, weedy, weaky. I came, I saw, I conquered. Well, here, the kings of the earth, they came, they saw, they lost. They lost it. They lose. They panic. They run away in terror. This, this is their experience, these royal enemies of the great king. Now, the psalmist here doesn't tell us which historical events that he has in mind in, in describing the terror of these kings. But if we know our Bibles, we can point to a number of things. Think of the Exodus. Here God brings his people out through the Red Sea on dry ground and the Pharaoh, who needed ten plagues to batter him into submission, now sees the workforce leaving. There go the slaves. Now what are we going to do? Now we, gotta, now we have to work. Let's bring these Israelites back. And so he sends out his chariots, his, his best tank divisions to round up these Israelites and bring them back. But you know the story. They came, they assembled, they chased the Israelites. But I wonder what thoughts were going through their mind as these charioteers now see suddenly their wheels getting bogged down. 
and then the water comes over them. They came, they saw, they were terrorized before God destroyed them. And the text says in Exodus 14 that the Israelites saw the Egyptian dead and they believed in the Lord and in Moses, his servant. On another occasion, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, a coalition of three nations, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Moabites, this coalition of enemies come around the south end of the Dead Sea. They head for Jerusalem. King Jehoshaphat is, is scared, as any human ruler would be. He calls for a massive prayer meeting in Jerusalem. And then God sends revelation. Don't worry. The battle is the Lord's, not yours. Just stand and watch the victory of God. And what happens? Second Chronicles 20 records that these three nations turn on each other and they self-destroy the, themselves. Another story. King Sennacherib, the great Assyrian king, sends his forces. Uh, he himself comes and they surround Jerusalem. And they send the Rabshakeh, the, the chief of staff, I guess you would call him today, and he makes this great speech to the soldiers on the walls of Jerusalem. Don't trust in the Lord. He's angry with you. Don't trust in Hezekiah. Your God is angry with Hezekiah. Trust in us. We Assyrians are nice people. We're kind and gentle. Just surrender to us and we'll take good care of you, the liar. And what happens? The Lord shows himself to be the true strength of his people, the angel of the Lord comes and 185,000 Assyrian soldiers die. King Sennacherib goes back, totally defeated, only to be assassinated by his own sons back in Assyria. You see what history shows us? We have heard, we have seen the mighty things that the Lord has done to defend his people. The kings of the earth might assemble their armies, they might amass their fleets, and yet God just sends his word, he scatters them, he destroys them. They don't win. You know, the story is told that during the Russian Revolution, Vladimir Lenin took one of his associates into an Orthodox church, and he said, do you see that babushka, that grandma, praying over there? When that babushka, when that grandma is dead, the church in Russia will be dead. Brothers and sisters, Vladimir Lenin is dead. But that bab you go to a church and that babushka is still there praying. And she's been joined by her children, many of her children, not all. She's been joined by her grandchildren, many, but not all. Yes, there are young people praying for the advance of God's kingdom in Russia today. I teach in Latvia. I have Russian language students who cannot come physically to Latvia. Some of these pastors have had to flee their country lest they be inducted into the Russian army. I just want to say to you, the, the, the Church of Jesus Christ in Russia is not dead. There are Reformed Presbyterian believers there who call on the name of the Lord every Lord's Day. 
You see, Yahweh, the Lord, is the living fortress of His people. He is the true strength of the city. Not its pastors, not its teachings, not its walls, not its, its financial wealth. And we need to be reminded of that again and again, don't we? Namely this, that Jesus Christ has overcome the world, John 16, that he is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is with us as a fortress. You know, in the days of the Protestant Reformation, uh, Philip Melanchthon, who was Luther's right-hand man, would often become quite discouraged when things didn't seem to be going right for the Reformation. And then Luther would say, come, Philip, let us sing the 46th Psalm. God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in time of trouble. You know, that great Reformation hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, is based upon Psalm 46. The defeat of the enemies of God is not because the city walls are so thick. It is not because the soldiers on those walls are the finest trained soldiers. The defense of the city, the strength of the city, of God, of the church, is in the Lord and the Lord alone. This leads us then to the third stanza, verses 9 through 11, where the psalm says that we all contemplate, think about the steadfast love of God. Beautiful, isn't it? What are God's people thinking about? What should they be thinking about? God's unfailing love, his steadfast love, his commitment to his agenda, to his people, to his Christ. And history shows us what that means, doesn't it? God makes a sure promise to his people, though they be sinners. His promise is that he will be our God and all that that means, even as we are his people. The steadfast love of the Lord, the commitment that God has made to his people, means that in time and space, he takes the sins of his elect, he places that on Christ, making the death of Christ necessary. A cursed death, by the way, one who hangs on the tree, that is, one who is crucified. But then not only does our sin and iniquity go to Christ, our guilt to him, his righteousness is then reckoned to be ours. That great double exchange, our sin to Christ, his righteousness to us. This removes our guilt. It removes God's wrath. It reconciles us sinners to the Father so that he can adopt us and make us truly his sons, his daughters, his children by sovereign grace. He does that for you, brothers and sisters, for you, for sinners, for the elect from every nation, tribe, and people throughout the entire world. He has poured out his spirit so that that same spirit of Christ, God might work saving faith in our hearts and that that spirit might take the blessings of Christ and apply them throughout our lives, in our lives, throughout our lives. Do you know this? Do you believe this? 
Do you embrace this with a true and living faith? Do you trust that this Jesus has accomplished all this by his work, his death, his resurrection, his intercession? That is his steadfast, unfailing love for his elect. You know, God's people back in that older covenant era could go to the temple and there, if the priests of the old covenant era were doing their job, they would be teaching, teaching the Torah. This is what God has done for his people. This is what God's will, his law is like. But they didn't teach faithfully. So that when we come to the time of Jeremiah, he says, the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their own discretion and my people love to have it so. They had itching ears for these things, even in Jeremiah's day, so that they came to trust in the physical temple. As long as we have this physical temple, we will be safe. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord is this, Jeremiah 7. And Jeremiah says, don't say that. The temple of the Lord is this. And then you go outside of the temple and you commit robbery, sorcery, adultery, you steal. Don't treat this building as kind of a lucky charm. That's not how it works. And so the old, the temple of the old covenant is gone even when it was rebuilt after the time of the exile, AD 70, the Romans came and destroyed it. It's gone. And in its place, now a living temple with living stones, the church of our Lord Jesus Christ exists. And this is why you come Sunday after Sunday to hear the word of the Lord. You hear it when you study together in Bible studies your family devotions, your private devotions. And that contemplation, that meditation should lead to doxology. As, as verse 11 says, let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Yes, let the villages around Jerusalem join the city in praising God. And all of this then leads to the last stanza. Uh, verses 12 to 14 tells us to go on a walkabout. That's not a common English term, is it? A walkabout. Go through the city. Count the towers. Note the citadels. Check on the ramparts that this great city has. Take note of it. Have you counted them? And then strangely enough, it says in verse 14, this is God. And immediately we are shocked into our Christian sensibilities. Wait. The towers and citadels of the city are not God. We are not going to create an idol here. Count the citadels. This is God. Wait. That would be a contradiction of everything else that is in the psalm, wouldn't it? We don't make created things. Idols? Or would we? Or have we? 
Now keep in mind this fact, as Paul points out in Romans 1, the verses 18 and following, that anything that is created has the potential to become an idol. Because remember Paul says, man in his suppression of the truth worships the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And then all kinds of strange theologies and strange ethics flow out of that. Let me flesh this out a bit. In the history of the church, there are those who have believed that the bread and the wine in communion actually turn into the very body, blood, spirit, the reality of Jesus. Physically, he's there. And therefore, to receive Jesus is to receive the bread and the wine. Literally. So that when their teeth press the bread, their teeth are actually pressing the very flesh of Jesus. But the scriptures makes it clear, John 6 makes it clear, that faith is the mouth by which we receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Next Sunday, when we come to the Lord's table, we come with faith. And faith is the mouth whereby we receive and have true fellowship with Jesus Christ. Or how about this? What are the strengths that you see in the church today? Well, we might say, you know, the church has really fine pastors, great preachers. We have, through, you know, a period of time of refining and study and debate and discussion, Great sound doctrines. And don't misunderstand what I'm going to say. We need great pastors, good pastors, faithful pastors. We need the best articulation of doctrine that we can come up with. We need to catechize our children, our boys and girls, each other in these truths. We need that. But will the doctrine by itself save us? Will the doctrine by itself save us? Remember what James says in James 2? The demons believe that God is one. The demons are monotheists. And they tremble. That doesn't make them friends of God. That doesn't make them believers though they understand that there is only one God. So how do we stay away from idolatry? Well, ultimately it's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that opens our eyes to see beyond what our physical eyes see, so that we see Jesus, for he is the true strength of his people. He's the ultimate victor, and Christ always sends his enemies away in confusion. I... I never can quite understand what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane where they come at night to arrest Jesus. Jesus says, Whom are you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am he. And they fall over. How does that happen? He asks the question. He answers their... Uh, they, they say what they want. He answers, I am he. And they fall over. What a strange event. They came, they saw, they fell over. Do the walkabout. But then understand this. 
that what our physical eyes see must, always must point beyond themselves to what is the true strength behind what our physical eyes see. The true strength of the church is Jesus, the living King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who is Emmanuel in our midst. Because if the Lord does not guard the city, then the best trained troops will watch in vain. If the Lord is not the real fortress of his people, then the best soldiers will not be able to stop the enemy when they want to take over the city. Either the Lord is our true strength or we are lost. And the psalm says, teach this to your children. Actually, the fourth stanza is the only part of the psalm that tells us to do something. Teach this to your children. That's why the scriptures are so insistent. Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 and following. Psalm 78, instruct the children in this so that they might have the eyes of faith, that they might obey. If it was self-evident, there wouldn't be this call for education. But there it is. Teach this to your children. You know, I tell my students at the seminary, you don't have to tell people to be ignorant. They can do that on their own. You do have to instruct them and replace that ignorance with the true teachings of the word of God. And all of this requires faith. Faith. Not faith in what our physical eyes see, but faith in what those things that we see, what they represent, what is behind it. The strength of a physical wall is not in its physicalness. The strength of the community is in the God who lives in our midst. God is with his people in the presence of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God is a fortress for his people in the presence of person of his Holy Spirit, a comforter who is great strength to help his people and to help you in all times and places. Therefore, believe on the promises that are yes and amen in Jesus. Jesus said, I am with you to the end of the ages. I am the true strength of my church, my city. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, help us to see with the eyes of faith where the true strength of the church is and not to be taken up into any kind of idolatry. The strength of your church is not its money, not of its leaders, not of its buildings. None of those things, Father, ultimately add up to anything in your presence. The nations are like a speck of dust in your presence. And so, Father, open our eyes to see the realities of where the strength of your people lies in the presence of your powerful Son who loved us, who loves us to the very end, even Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's respond by singing Psalm 48. The first setting, A, 48A, stanzas 1, 4, 5, and 6. 48A, 1, 4, Five and six.
desire as a congregation to gather next Sunday around the table of the Lord. As part of the preparation for that, I invite you to turn in the Forms and Prayers book to page 50. The words of preparation helping us to focus on what worthy participation in the Lord's Supper means page 50 in the Forms and Prayers book. To all of you who have with godly sorrow confessed your sins and who have affirmed true faith in Christ, the promise of Jesus is sure. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it 
in remembrance of me. While remaining bread and wine, these sacred elements nevertheless become so united to the reality they signify that, they, that we do not doubt, but joyfully believe that we receive in the meal by the Spirit through faith nothing less than the crucified body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. For all who live in rebellion against God and in unbelief, this holy food and drink will bring you only further condemnation. For if you do not yet confess Jesus Christ and seek to live under his gracious reign, we admonish you to abstain. But all who repent and believe are invited to this sacred meal, not because you are worthy in yourself, but because you are clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness. Do not allow the weakness of your faith or your failures in the Christian life to keep you from this table, for it is given to us because of our weakness and because of our failures, in order to increase our faith by feeding us with the body and blood of Jesus Christ. As the word has promised us God's favor, so also our Heavenly Father has added this confirmation of his unchangeable promise. So come, believing sinners, for the table is ready. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, who by the blood of your only begotten Son has rescued us for us, has secured for us a new and living way into the Holy of Holies, cleanse our minds and hearts by your word and spirit that we, your redeemed people, drawing uh, close to you through this holy sacrament, may enjoy fellowship with the Holy Trinity through the body and blood of Christ our Savior. We know that our ascended Savior does not live in temples made by hands.